Good to be with you here this morning sharing God's word again and it's, uh, it's uh, an honour and a privilege to be able to do so. Turn with your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. As we continue our look at who we are. First Corinthians chapter two, verse nine. But as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your precious word that we can now look into and see who you are, who we are, what you would have us to do, Lord, and what wondrous things you have done. Heavenly Father, I pray that your spirit would superintend this, uh, this message this morning, that he would teach our hearts your truth, that we would learn of you, that we would know more of you, that our hearts may grow closer to you. Lord, I pray that we are challenged this day to live more boldly for your sake. Your name may be glorified in our lives, both in this place and out of this place. We thank you once again for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last time we met, we, we considered the question that David posed in his psalm concerning the nature of man. Do you remember that? And I gave you all these uh, world views and things. And, and the question that, that David um, asked in Psalm 8 was, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? And do you remember David was contrasting the glory and the perfectness of God and the wonder of God with us. And David had to ask in his own mind, God, why would you even waste time with us when we consider ourselves compared to you? And there was a, a huge gulf between the nature of man and the nature of God. And we considered also um, what the answer to that question was. What is it about us that makes us special to God? And then we, we went on to say, and the argument that I was trying to make uh, that day was that men will treat each other in part by how they view each other. Men will treat each other the same way they view each other. In other words, if I see you as, and, and I see myself as simply a, a smarter animal, 
then we will treat each other eventually that way. But if we see ourselves and each other in something more, as something more higher, more noble, with purpose, then we will start to think a little bit differently about our actions. Is man just a random act of nature with no beginning and is constantly a product of his environmental influences? We, we compared a number of, diff, a number of world views last time and we saw the difference that Christianity has compared to all these other ones. And the, the basis of the whole thing was who I am will always determine to the greatest extent how I will behave. And part of the answer to living a Christian life, and, and this, is, this is all heading to um, Christian living, believe it or not, because I like to set a foundation first. Because if you don't know what you're standing on, if you don't know who you are, then you won't know what to do, just like having a job. If you don't know what your job is in life, if you find yourself all of a sudden holding a scalpel and, a, uh, and, and wearing the garb of a, uh, of a surgeon, but don't know what you're doing there, guess what you're not going to do properly? Operate on that person who's actually uh, lying on that table. Who, my understanding of who I am will determine to a great extent how I behave. So living like a Christian begins in part with a proper understanding of who we are. Because who we are sets our boundaries and provides a foundation for what we can be and what we should strive to be in this world, what we are capable of. What we see ourselves as and the world forms what we call a worldview. And we compared a number of worldviews, which are prominent both today and have been so throughout history, and there was a dramatic difference between Christianity and every other worldview. The most prominent of the differences was the basic understanding of whether man was basically good or bad. And nearly every other worldview, in fact, every other worldview out there believes that man is basically good. And that man has the ability, provided the right circumstances, the right education, the right focus, the right environment, that man has the ability to elevate himself and to grow and advance. And we looked at a bit of the evolutionary model and we said, you know, see, evolution says we are constantly on the upward and up, you know, we are constantly improving and, in, uh, and increasing in our abilities. Not so, Christianity says. Christianity says that we are pretty much the same as what we were 5,000, 6,000 years ago. We haven't really changed. And if we look with any type of honesty at the world around us, we'll simply see that what, we've, what we see today is simply a reflection of what's gone on in the past. Yes, we are more technologically advanced because technology builds in the previous technology. So yes, we've got computers and flat panel televisions and you know we can communicate with each other via the internet and all those types of things but um, it doesn't make us any different man's heart is still the same we're not actually even smarter than people were a few hundred years ago although we'd like to believe that 
there's a, there's, a, there's a common fallacy at the moment that, that goes around that says, you know, we are much smarter than the people who came before us. Rubbish. We are not smarter than them. Actually, if anything, we've been dumbed down. <clears throat> so, what we believe about ourselves will determine how we act. The Bible asserts that man is a fallen being, a being who was created perfect, but then fell, and as a result of that fall, every man, woman and child has inherited that weakness. We also found out that man is capable of good. The problem was that he was basically sinful when compared to God's standard. And how did it get that way? Well, we saw in the first two chapters of Genesis that God created man in a very special relationship. God made man for a special relationship with him. God didn't speak to the animals, did he? He spoke to man with clear words and man responded. God gave man the capacity to think for himself, to communicate, to love, to create. And there are so many other things that set us apart from the animal world. God didn't create man simply as a smarter monkey, believe it or not. Although sometimes we're not... No, no, I'm like <clears throat> We aren't just a highly or more developed animal. God gave man abilities and perceptions that every other living creature on this planet simply doesn't have and cannot ever achieve. There exists a huge gulf between what man is and what the animals are. And it may have something to do with the absolutely extraordinary way in which God created man. Turn to Genesis, turn back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And we'll read something that God never referred to the animals as having. Genesis 1.26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Is there any reference in the Bible that God did this for any of the other animals? No. God created only man in his image. And he gave only man the dominion over this planet. The image of God is unique to humans. Apart from the extra abilities that we have in terms of our mental capacities, there is something intrinsic in our nature that makes us fundamentally different. God has made us spirit beings that are immortal. We're immortal. Animals aren't. When man fell, the image of God was corrupted, but our immortality remained. The Christian doctrine of immortality cannot be understood apart from a right conception of the true nature of man. And the nature of man is that we have been created in God's image. We have been created tripartite people tripartite 
<clears throat> we have three parts. And there are three parts to many other things in this universe. God has said that we aren't just physical beings. And there's a great danger if we think like that, as if this body is the only thing that exists. And there's a, there's a, a, a tendency in man to lose sight of the fact that one, he is immortal, and two, that he is made up of three parts. I'll go into that in a second. There have been persons who have lived all their lives either in ignorance or willful neglect of the fact there is life after death and that this body is not all there is. And there is even a, a misconception in Christianity today that there are only two parts to man, body and soul. Catholic Church believes that. The Bible teaches that we are not just two, we are three. The Bible speaks also of a spirit within man. And while soul and spirit are so closely related that it's sometimes very difficult to distinguish the two, if we look at the scripture verses, there's only one logical conclusion, that soul and spirit aren't the same. And that man is three, spirit, soul and body. And it goes back to Genesis 1.26, where God said, let us make man in our image. We know that God is a trinity, correct? And the trinity is clearly explained in the Apostle Paul's benediction. If you look at 2 Corinthians 13.14, you don't need to turn there. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. When the Lord Jesus sent out his apostles to, to share the gospel in the world, he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. How many names do we have? One. The name of. He didn't say the names of. There is one God who eternally exists as three persons. Okay? There are many other things in nature that are composed of three. Actually, we look at, we look at uh, matter in the universe and we find there are basically three types of matter, solid, liquid and gas. Most elements can exist in those three phases. In fact, there is a, uh, and I've had this debate with someone before, but if anyone knows science, it's something called the triple point of water, where water can exist as gas, ice and water in the same place at the same time. Interesting, isn't it? God, and there's a, there's a, there's a bit of a, a, a difference here though. <clears throat> and I'll go into it in a second. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. We know that God is a trinity. Let's see what the Bible says about man. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. 
And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There you have the three parts of man, the spirit, the soul and the body. Turn forward to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Very few, ever, very few people ever um, deny the existence of the body, do they? It's pretty hard to deny the fact that people have a physical body. Most people try to say that the spirit and the soul are the same thing. But let's look at Hebrews 4.12 and you'll see something a little bit different here as well. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. It can divide the soul and the spirit of man, just as it can divide the joints and the marrow. They're two different things, aren't they? And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The spirit and the soul are two different things. God's word says they are, and, and it makes us more like the image of God. In spite of the erroneous teachings of, of cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses, that man doesn't even have a soul, believe it or not. The Bible states emphatically that we are created a tripartite being, spirit, soul, and body. And I'm reluctant to actually call us Trinity, Because the Trinity involves so much else, so much more. For example, in the definition of the Trinity, God exists as three persons, eternal, with with all the attributes of God. They're three persons. Our spirit, soul and body aren't three persons. Do you understand the difference? Okay. There is a a limit to, uh, to the description of us being made up of three parts and comparing that to the Trinity. The three parts of man can be divided. In fact, the saints, to give you an example, the saints who are with the Lord now are without what part? A body. They have no body. Those who who are with the Lord now are soul and spirit. What are they waiting for? A body. See, eventually, God will bring back and make complete what he had made originally. Eventually, we're all given new bodies because he made us that way, spirit, soul, and body. Scripture is also very clear about the fact that we can be separated from our bodies but still have all the perceptions and feelings and memories and things without having a brain and, and all the, the physical uh, input through, through our physical body. Turn to Luke chapter 16 verse 22 as we look at that in a little bit more uh, detail. Luke 16.22, this is a familiar passage to us. 
And it came to pass the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Now, in those three verses, we find some extraordinary truths. We find that even without a body, okay, now he was in hell. He wasn't in hell with his body. He was in hell simply as a soul and spirit. Without a body, the rich man could see. So he didn't have physical eyes, but he could see what was going on. He could see Abraham and Lazarus. He could perceive what was going on. He knew his situation. He had self-awareness. He knew where he was. He could show emotions. He could formulate, even in his own head, an argument in asking or requesting that Lazarus would come and dip his finger in some water and cool his tongue. That shows that he still has mental abilities and capabilities. He could feel pain and discomfort. He could feel hot and cold. He could feel hot or heat. It's also interesting uh, in Scripture, the Scripture declares that when the Lord Jesus died upon the cross and his body was in the grave, that he also went down and spoke to the, to the spirits. So there's a whole lot of things happening that, that, and abilities that, that people have even without a body. No, life is not ultimately physical. And the body is not all there is. But we should add that we are made up of three parts. That's the way God created us. And that's our natural state. It's not natural for man to be separated from his body or her, or her body. And the threefold nature of man is an essential part of our relationship with God. How does our relationship to God, how does that match with the way he made us? Well, how does the way he made us reflect or work with that? Well, we're going to have a look at that in a little bit, uh, a little bit more detail now. And what we're going to do is simply focus on the spirit today. I don't, I'm not going to go through spirit, soul, and body because I'm going to keep you for three hours. So we're just simply going to look at the spirit. Okay? Now, in scripture, the word spirit has several meanings. So every time you see the word spirit in, in the Bible, it actually can be referring to a whole lot of different things. Whenever the word spirit with a capital S appears, okay, it refers to one. It refers to a being and it refers to the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost. Okay, so when you see a capital S for spirit, it's always referring to the Holy Spirit. Matthew 10, 20. Turn, turn there now so you can actually see an example of that. Matthew chapter 10, verse 20. Matthew chapter 10, verse 20. For it is not ye that speak, 
but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. Is that, has it capital S or is it a small one? Has a capital. So if, it's refer, if it has a capital S, it's speaking about the Holy Spirit as part of the Trinity. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Now if it has a small s, it may have two separate meanings. It may, it may be referring to the Spirit which is in man. Or it may be referring to a different entity. Turn to Matthew chapter 12 verse 43. Matthew 12, verse 43 says, When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. And this passage doesn't mean that man's spirit left him, that his own spirit left. It refers to a different being. It refers to, in this case, a demon or some agent of the devil. So whenever the word is a small s spirit, it can be referring to our, our spirit, the spirit that is within us as part of our, our three-part Three parts, or it can be referring to an evil spirit or a spirit that is, doesn't have a body and a soul like us. And you might illustrate the three uh, parts of man or the threefold nature of man with three simple circles. One outer circle, which is the body, which is the part that actually experiences all the the, um, uh, the perceptions of this world, of the material world. It goes through, and, the, and the, the, a circle inside that could be the soul. And a circle inside that is the spirit. And just to give you a brief rundown of, of how they may, what they, what they do and how they, how they may work is, um, the outer circle, the body, is shown as touching the material world through five senses, sight, smell, hearing, taste and touch. That's how we get our knowledge of the world around us. The soul expresses itself through such things as imagination, reason and affections. It's what makes you, you, really. It's what makes me, me. It's our characteristics, our, the fact that I tell such good jokes. See, you're even laughing. You can't help yourself. Can you? The spirit ex- uh, receives impressions... Through the soul, as it were. The spirit expresses itself through things such as faith, worship and belief. What belief you have, the way you see yourself, really come from the spirit part. In in the unfallen state, in other words, before Adam and Eve fell, the spirit of man was illuminated. It's a big word which means it received its life and its, its information and knowledge directly from heaven, directly from the relationship with God. But when human uh, beings fell, when Adam and, uh, Adam and Eve sinned, it closed the window of God's spirit. It pulled down a curtain, as it were, and the chamber of the spirit became a death chamber. And it remains so in the unregenerate heart. Until something happens, until God does his work through the Holy Spirit and he brings that part of us back to life again through Jesus Christ. I just want to share with you an illustration now because I think that God, doesn't, God does things for a reason. And I think that the fact that he created the temple in a particular way may illustrate the way we are. Okay? 
the temple of God or the tabernacle. Do you remember the tabernacle was a tent when the, when the Jews were traveling around uh, and they would set up a, a tent and that tent had to be built in a certain way. It was built in three sections. It was built with an outer court, an inner court, and then it was a central hub where they would keep the Ark of the Covenant, where God's um, presence was. The outer court, and this, and this same pattern was, was also repeated when they built the temple. You had an outer court where everyone could come in, okay, where, where the common man could, could enter and participate in the things that God had asked them to do. It was then separated from what was called the, the holy place, where only the priests were allowed to go. Normal people were allowed to go in there. They would serve in this particular room. Only the priests were allowed to, uh, to be there. And then there was this special place right in the middle or right at the back where no one else could get to except for the high priest once a year. In there was God's presence. It was called the Holy of Holies. And once a year the priest would sprinkle the blood of a lamb over that seat and God would see the blood and he would forgive the people of their sins. This is the place where God's presence was. And God's presence, God's presence filled that room when the, when the um, thing was there, when the ark was there. Right. Let's see if this still works. No, it doesn't. Okay. Now, if we equate the three sections of the temple, the outer court would be the body. It is a place that experiences all the things of the world coming into it. The holy place would be the soul, and the holy of holies, the spirit. Now, when man fell, the spirit couldn't function anymore. We still had a soul, we still had a, we still had a body, but the spirit no longer could function as it was meant to function. It was a conduit or a passageway or, a, or a, a way of communicating directly with the spirit world, with God, with heaven. It only held a remnant of the form of the previous. All the spirit could now do was simply remind man of his eternal status and his knowledge of good and evil through something we call a conscience. But that was it. Apart from that, it was dead. It was almost a useless thing. Man could no longer enter and commune with God through it because all the Spirit could do is remind us that we one day would die bodily and that we were guilty as sinners. When Jesus died upon the cross, do you remember what happened in the temple? There was a veil, and I've already mentioned this morning, the veil tore from top to bottom. Now, what was that veil separating? It separated the, holy, the holiest of holies. And it opened, as it were, the door again for man because of what Jesus did on the cross. <coughs> Jesus, our high priest, entered into that holiest place. He made atonement for us. He didn't have to make atonement for himself, but he made atonement for all of us so that through the work of the Holy Spirit, that part of us could one day be revived, could be brought back to life. And would perform the function that it was designed to do. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God's throne would become accessible to man again. Remember I said to you, we have a privilege. 
that the unsaved don't have. They cannot approach God's throne. That has to be done in the Spirit or through the Spirit. But because the Spirit has given life to our spirit now, we can actually approach God's throne again. Turn to John chapter 3. Now, most of you are very familiar with this passage as well. When Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he says in verse 5, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, verse 6. There is a very simple principle here that, he's, that Jesus is explaining. Do you remember in Genesis when God created all the different types of animals? He said they would do what? That they would reproduce after what? Their kind. Okay? And Jesus is simply expanding the same principle here. Flesh cannot produce spirit. Spirit cannot produce flesh. So what he's saying is that flesh, when reproducing, produces more flesh. In the same way, spirit produces spirit. But look at verse 6. Which is a capital and which is a small s? Do you notice? It's the spirit. That which is born of a spirit is spirit. In other words, when a person is born again, when they are saved, and this is what he's referring to here, when they're saved and they're born again, God's spirit brings to life our spirit. Just as Jesus was raised from the grave, God brings our spirit back to life. It develops then that the spirit of man is the sphere of our knowledge of God. It's, where it's, it, it's the place where we find out what God is really like. It's the inner, private office. The holy of holies, in a sense, within ourselves where the work of regeneration takes place. It's here that the Holy Spirit of God lives and does its work in our lives. Now, this is a very important principle here because it's through this particular part of us that the Spirit of God actually teaches us the wondrous things of God and the things that if you look back at our our previous thing, the world cannot receive because that part of them is still dead. Turn to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 again. First Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, I have not seen, nor ye heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. See, often people just stop at that one verse, the first one. And they say, see, no one's got any idea about what God's preparing for them or what God's doing. No, that's not true. We do have an idea of what God's doing for us. God has revealed it to us because in verse 10 it says, God has revealed it to them, sorry, revealed them unto us by his Spirit. So the Spirit of God reveals certain things to us. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. So the Spirit goes, 
gets all the deep things of God and then shares them to us. And then Paul makes a, a comparison here. He says in verse 11, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of a man which is in him? The unregenerate spirit only knows the things of a man. It doesn't know the things of God. It cannot know them. It's disconnected. But then he goes on to say, Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. And verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things which are freely given to us of God. The Spirit we received is the Spirit of knowledge of Him. And verse 13, Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. God teaches us through his spirit only because our spirits have been brought back to life again. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And verse 14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned and he can't discern them because his spirit is dead, useless. Man in his unregenerate or unsaved state comes to know only the things of man by the spirit or the workings of the spirit in man which is in him. However, the human spirit is limited to the things of man. It can't know the things of God. If I want to know the things of God, then I, my spirit needs to be brought back to life again. It needs to be resurrected in a sense. But through the work of the Holy Spirit, our spirit can receive the things of God. We can be taught the things of God. When a person is born again, they begin to receive the very teachings of God through the Holy Spirit. This is a fundamental thing that we believe as Baptists. We don't need a priest at the front of a church through whom all doctrine has to come. We can learn, each and every one of us, directly from God himself through his word. There is one thing that stands as a guard to our spirit, and that's our own will. If, your soul, if you say within your soul, I don't want to know God, you can stop that thing from happening. You don't have to allow God to come and revive your spirit. You can stay exactly the way you are as a person. But when the Spirit of God comes and gives life to our dead spirits, then something incredible happens. Turn to John chapter 17, verse 3. What's the purpose? What were we meant to do as people? Why did Christ come to this earth? And it was simply this. And this is life eternal. That they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That they might know thee. How does a person come to know God and to know Christ? It's through the workings of the Holy Spirit in, in our hearts, in our spirit. Only then... Will a person know that the transaction has also been made for them? They discern that something has happened within their lives. That's why Romans 8.16 says, 
The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit. It speaks with our spirit that we are the children of God. <coughs> There's communion happening. Having your spirit revived also allows you to receive the truths from God's word. John 16, 13 says, How be it, when he, the spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. And whatever you believe will determine how and why and who you worship. Because the natural man worships himself. The natural man worships can only worship the things of this world because that's all he knows. That's why people find it hard to accept Christianity. Unless their spirit has been revived, they cannot understand the things that we're speaking about over here. But when a person is saved, when their spirit has now become illuminated, brought back to life, all of a sudden they begin to understand what God is all about. Who God is. When Jesus spoke to the lady at the well, the woman at the well, he said this, But the hour cometh and now is when true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit, little s, and in truth. You cannot worship God. That's why we say you cannot worship God with the false doctrines, not knowing who he is. You need to know who God is first in order to worship him. And that only comes when God actually gives you that information through the Spirit. No amount of religion or church or church activities or programs can ever change the spirit of an unregenerate person. They can go to church their whole lives. They can do everything that other Christians do in a sense of, as an outward thing. But if their spirit is not regenerate or regenerated again, they don't know the things of God. Dr. Campbell Morgan said this, Remember, it is out of false charity or pity you allow men of material ideals and worldly wisdom to touch holy things, to handle the pearls of the kingdom. Presently they will turn and rend you. This is the whole history of Christendom's ruin in the measure in which Christendom is ruined. We gave holy things to dogs. We cast the pearls of the kingdom before swine. The ministry of Christ's church dare not be entrusted to any man who has not been born again. For the Bible teaches very clearly that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. This is why I come, I'm part of a Baptist church. One of the distinguishing features that makes us different to other people who call themselves Christian out there is, you know something? They accept people into their membership and into their leadership who are not even born again. They think that by baptising a baby, that that, bapti that baby is somehow regenerated 
and becomes a member of the church. Wrong. The Bible says that baptism is an outward sign of something that's happened on the inside. So the, world's, so the churches of the world are filled with people who are unsaved, not only as members, but in leadership. How can someone whose spirit has not been brought back to life, who cannot receive the things of God, truly teach the things of God, if they don't really believe them in their heart? Yeah, you can do the rope. You can, you can mumble a few words. You can, you can go along with the whole flow. But you can't really convince anyone. Actually, I um, had a couple of conversations yesterday with some pastors who were discussing the, the sermon that was given at the wedding over there in England. And we all agreed that what was said was actually pretty spot on. It wasn't that far off. But then we all agreed, and that's something else, that it didn't penetrate anyone's heart probably there. It probably went right over their heads, didn't sink in, hit a barrier and could not be properly digested for them to actually grow. There's a lot of sadness that goes along with that. Baptist churches have what's called a saved membership. That's why when we vote someone into membership in our church, it's because they have a testimony that Christ has saved them and has become their saviour and their Lord. We don't just vote everyone into church because you know what? When it comes time for us to vote, we are all hoping that everyone who is voting, everyone who is part of this process of running this church or, or being a part of this church actually is saved and is actually being taught by the Spirit at the same time. If that's not the case, if there are unsaved all over the place and, and, and they have an influence as well, you can rest assured that there's trouble. The crucial point in the whole thing that separates us from false churches is this. Just as a born-again believer is taught and energised by the Holy Spirit through our revived spirits, the unbeliever who claims to be a Christian is not only not being taught by the Holy Spirit because they can't accept it, they're still in the flesh, but they're being taught by another who they can accept. This person's spirit, a person who is unregenerate, unsaved, not born again, accepts truths from another spirit, the Bible speaks about, who works in all of the unsaved. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. First Timothy chapter four verse one. Now the Spirit ex- speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. That warning comes to the church 
That warning comes through the Holy Spirit. And he's speaking expressly, he speaks very clearly, Paul is saying, that there are many spirits that will go out to teach lies and deception about God, about the truth. John, the Apostle John, actually repeats this same thing. And he says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. They're not all capital S. They're all small. They're all spirits that have gone out to deceive the world into believing a lie. So while the hope is for us that we are being taught by the Holy Spirit of God, there are people in the world, in fact, everyone in the world who is not saved is being taught directly from false spirits, from evil spirits, from demons. This is the challenge. That's why the Bible, that's why Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. That's why he is called the one who blinds the minds of those who stops them from believing the gospel. And he's able to do that because he is continually using this dead spirit against them. Now, how do we know? Well, we know we can tell the truth and the lie through God's word. That's why Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There are only two conditions a person can be in. They are either spiritually dead and susceptible to the lies of Satan, or they can be spiritually alive and still susceptible to the lies of Satan if they don't have God's word, if they don't have that as a foundation for their lives. The one who is not saved and who is spiritually dead only has one destination they can go to. Hard as they try to be spiritual or otherwise, they have one destination. Their spirit will ultimately condemn them. God will judge them and found and will find them all wanting and they have one place to go. And it's the lake of fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. The only way to remedy this is for God's word to break through the barrier of the heart. To penetrate that dead space that is within men's hearts, called the spirit within man. Only then can a person accept the truth of God. If you haven't accepted Christ this morning, if you don't know if you're saved, the odds are you're spiritually dead. There is a part of you now that is not operating as it should and you cannot accept the things of God. Many people go through church their entire lives. There are many faithful people out there, faithful in a sense that they'll go to church every week. I know, I come from a Catholic background. And they'll go, they'll go every week, every week, and not come out of that place any wiser about their spiritual state. They're eternally lost. They can sit under the gospel, even hear scripture readings from the pulpit, and nothing will ever sink in. 
If you're that way this morning, if you don't know where you're at, if you don't know that, that God gave his only son to die on the cross for you, and you don't know if you've accepted him or not as your saviour, why would you waste a moment? Why would you not get on your knees, even now, and pray and say, Lord, reveal yourself to me? Help me to understand my state. Help me to understand who I am, my sinful condition. Because unless a person understands their sinful condition first, unless God reveals that to you, you cannot turn to Christ and accept his forgiveness and salvation. It's the first step. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you aren't saved this morning, come and speak to us straight away. You don't know what will happen when you leave those, these doors today. And for those of you who have been quickened, who have been made alive by the Spirit of God, who have had your spirit renewed, can I ask you a question? Are you living as a priest of God? Are you, do you actually see yourself as a royal priest? who can enter before God's throne, who has been given enormous privileges and honour. Are you living that noble life that God has asked us to live? We are the children of the king of the universe. What are you living like? Are we living like paupers? Are we living like the common people of the world? Because we're not. I'm not telling you that we need to be superior to everyone else because we're not. We never deserved it. We still don't deserve it. It's all been just given to us and handed to us on a silver platter. But how do you live that? What are you doing about it? Is the word active in your is the word of God active in your life? If it's not, be prepared to be deceived. Be prepared to live a life of ups and downs and, and, and heartaches and troubles. Because if you're not living your life by the spiritual principles that are found in God's word and you're listening, you're giving ear to the things that are taught in the world, be prepared to live a life of heartache. Only the word of God can pierce even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of my thoughts and my intents and my heart. It knows me, because God knows me. Am I ready to reveal? To, am I ready to actually allow God to tell me who I am? God bless you. Thank you.